0: Diversity is a good starting point, but it is just the start. In this episode, Stephanie Johnson invites us to take the next step toward leading an inclusive team and workplace. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 508.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahofiak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I know one of the areas that so many of us in our community have a heart for is how do we get better at supporting diversity and inclusion in our organizations. And although we have a great heart for that, We often stop short of taking all the actions that we can in order to support that well and to take practical steps that are going to help us all get better. I'm so glad today to be able to welcome someone who is absolutely an expert on this, is going to help us to take the next steps and actions to support organizations that really do look and sound the way we want them to. I'm glad to welcome today Stephanie Johnson. She is an author, professor, and keynote speaker who studies the intersection of leadership and diversity, focusing on how unconscious bias affects the evaluation of leaders and strategies that leaders can use to mitigate bias. She's an associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder's Leeds School of Business, teaching courses on leadership and inclusion. She's also a member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches program and was selected for the 2020 Thinkers 50 radar list. Stephanie is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and has been featured in many other media outlets, including Forbes, The Economist, Newsweek, Time, Wall Street Journal, and Bloomberg. Her book is titled Inclusify, The Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams. Stephanie, so glad to meet you.
1: Oh, nice to meet you.
0: We have a member of our community who has read over 200 books in the last year, which is amazing. And I asked her recently, what is the book that has been the best of all the ones you've read? And she said, it's your book. It was so helpful and so useful to her. And I knew I had to talk to you. So I'm so glad that we get to dive in on your work today.
1: Oh, thank you for sharing that story. That's really good to hear.
0: (laughs) As I got into this book, I had very much the same feeling of, wow, this is so Useful for us and being able to take more practical action. So, before we get into action steps, we do hear a number of words tossed around often. I mentioned two of them in the introduction the words diversity and the word also inclusion. And I'm wondering if you could paint a picture for how you think about these words as perhaps similar, but also distinct.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think of diversity as it's a number, how many women, how many women of color, how many people of color. And you can be pretty complicated with that number. Like how many women are there at the top, in the middle, in, so up the vertical, you can look across the horizontal or are people of color in the human resource department and not in accounting. But at the end of the day, it's always, it's a number. Inclusion to me is a feeling. um, And I describe it as the feeling that Feel that you belong, one of the most basic and essential human needs, but that you also feel you can belong while being your true, authentic self. And the way they're related is it's really not that hard to have inclusion if everyone is the same in your organization. So if you don't have a lot of diversity, inclusion is pretty easy. And maybe there's still people, since we're all different in different ways, maybe there's still people who don't feel they can be themselves, but that becomes much more of a challenge as you increase diversity to help people be able to feel like they can still be a essential valued member of the team while being their authentic self.
0: One of the quotes that came up for me in the book that just struck me as so central to what you just said was, and, and you write, most leaders miss out on one of the other of these two ingredients and end up with either cohesive teams of people who all act similarly, or a lot of diverse individuals who don't gel. And I've seen that a lot in organizations too. What's the difference when organizations and leaders are able to do both?
1: Right. Yeah, you know, I think the, the data would really show that you're going to get better decision making, greater innovation, better performance, higher engagement, lower turnover when you have just diversity. And then there's an added benefit beyond diversity when you also have inclusion. So when you have diversity plus inclusion, we know you make even better decisions. Um, you have even more innovation if people feel that they can actually share their different perspectives. And engagement is higher for everyone. In fact, everyone wants to be included. It's not you know a gender or race thing. It's just a basic human need, right? So people are less likely to want to leave your organization if they feel like a true part of it And not just like you're in this exchange relationship of you give me money for doing work because then I can easily find another organization that's probably willing to give me a little bit more money. And if I don't feel included as part of the team, then we just see a lot higher turnover is probably the biggest effect of having a lack of inclusion.
0: When you see organizations that have really done a good job at creating an environment that is inclusive, what's different about what they're doing versus everyone else?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I, I think of a lot of organizations I profile in the book and maybe the action that's different about a place like Starbucks or Salesforce or PayPal is they're really making inclusion part of their core values. They're saying this is part of our strategy. This is part of our mission, vision, and values. And so it really becomes part of the fabric of the organization. And I think several leaders actually use that exact term because for the book, I interviewed the CEOs of these companies, and that was, to me, the key differentiator. I could tell when this is really an inclusive culture or company, when they said, you know, this is core to who we are and what we do. And then those companies seem to not only they have this diversity and inclusion, this great culture, but interestingly... I mean, maybe it's just the companies I chose, but they're all outperforming their competitors. Like they're doing a great job. Their earnings are increasing. They're one of the best companies to work for. You know, they have the highest ratings of satisfaction from their customers and employees. It's very, it's really impressive.
0: It is. And it's so exciting to see how the research is really supporting that diversity and inclusion as far as numbers and business results there's really a clear correlation between those, aren't there?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, for a long time, I feel like that was the challenge was making this business case, right? Like, well, we see correlations between having more women on boards and stock prices. And I think there was a lot of pushback of, well, are these really causal and, you know, researchers invest a ton of time and effort really trying to parse these things apart. But I'd say today, like in, in 2020, I don't know that anyone really challenges this as a question anymore. I mean, it's been shown by McKinsey and Accenture and like all the major consulting companies, all the major financial firms. We see it from stock market data. You know, it's not just like faculty and researchers showing it. It's it's pretty I think it's pretty well accepted at this point. And it's
0: a it's a wonderful place for us to dive in on, because one of the things that I really love about the book is that you look at some of the different types of leaders. Do you, do you call types or archetypes or what?
1: Yeah, I think archetypes, maybe styles or behaviors because we're all, I don't know if anyone's a, a one type, we're all a little bit of all of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and it, it's really neat because when you go through the book, you highlight a bunch of the different types. And the one that really captured my attention was the one you call Optimus. And I think that really relates to what you've just said about, you know, we we know that we need to do uh, a better job with diversity. We know that diversity and inclusion are better for our organizations and for results, but we don't always take the next step. And And I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit about exploring the optimists and, and who is an optimist?
1: Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I didn't expect that optimist, I don't know if I expected any of them, but that was definitely an unexpected surprise. So the idea behind the book is that we have these two basic and essential human needs of uniqueness and belonging, and that leaders might differ in their strength of creating uniqueness, like showing people they can be themselves, uh, and they might differ in their ability to create strong cultures of belonging. And so you might have one or the other, you might have neither. If you have both, that's an inclusive leader. I call them inclusifiers, Um, but what I probably found the most, at least in, you know, researching people who care about diversity and inclusion is that a lot of leaders knew that they had to do these two things. They, you know, they were very well familiar with the idea of belonging. It was, you know, one of the hottest workforce trends in 2019. Organizations wanting to feel belonging. So leaders know this and they're very familiar with the bring your whole self to work. The idea that many employees have to mask or cover leave parts of themselves at home. And so they see both of these as important and they're doing both of them, but they're just not fully committed to taking the necessary action. They're kind of, I call them optimists because they believe that if you look at the data, it's like so clear that diversity and inclusion pay. And if you look at graduation rates in uh, myriad industries like medicine and law schools, you see lots more women and people of color graduating And so kind of the feeling of like, well, it'll just happen naturally. And just recognizing the importance of uniqueness and belonging is good enough. But it clearly from the research in the book, isn't like that doesn't move the needle. It's closer. I think we're all on a journey of maximizing these behaviors and skills. And optimists are the closest to actually being really inclusifiers. But they still need that added step of like, let's make it concrete and take action.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting diving in on this type of leader, and that there's some obstacles that come up, and one of them is that when you start to see more diversity in your organization, that the tendency is to feel like, okay, <laughs> I'm done, I've done, I did the work, we're heading in the right direction, and and as you said, like the trend line over time is going to solve itself, and yet that's that's not really enough, is it? No,
1: <laughs> no. I think the World Economic Forum estimates it'll take 170 years for gender equity, and so I guess if you're optimistic, you're right. This is going to happen, but 170 years is a pretty long time.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, so, so the goal is, you know, if we can move from optimist to inclusifier, that that would be a that would be a key step for us. And one of the people you mentioned in the book, someone from a professional services firm, made the point that the difference between an optimist. And an inclusifier is pretty basic. Fundamentally, it's actually talking about it. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting myself because we're all kind of learning and stumbling forward on this together. But I think so many of us are hesitant to publicly state I care about this. I care about diversity, inclusion, equity. I care about justice because people are really fearful they're going to say the wrong thing. Or that they're going to say, I care deeply about this. And someone's going to say, all right, what have you done? Or, oh, you care deeply about it, but not about my group. And so I think people fear that backlash, but also that maybe they're going to alienate other majority group members or people who feel like um, they're not part of the the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement, which is funny because everyone is, right? Diversity means everyone and inclusion is for everyone. But so as a result, a lot of people don't talk about it at work. And they would say they'd even talk about it with their friends, people in their church. You know, many people knew this was important to them. But when I would interview their direct reports, they would say, maybe, I mean, they might care about it, but they just never talk about it. So I don't know. And so that's just a small step and such a small thing to do to really articulate it, but just such an important one.
0: Yeah. And as you're saying that, I know I have made that mistake uh, over the years, and there's a big difference between your intentions and maybe telling a few people and really being more public about it. And one of the invitations you make in your work is for, if we want to become inclusifiers, to be a lot more public with our commitment to championing uniqueness and belonging. And I'm curious what that looks like when when you see leaders who are doing that better than 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 most others what is it that they are doing differently
1: right i mean so some of it is just the talking about it and saying it but of course that only gets you so far because we know we we have seen a lot of maybe i'll call it like performative diversity in the last few months people who say they really care but they also don't act on it so maybe the first step is saying you care and the second step is actually doing something. But I think this thing that stood out to me the most was the leaders who really valued uniqueness and belonging were very intentional in meetings when you had groups of people together to learn from each person in the room. And so if someone wasn't contributing, they weren't hesitant to call out the, you know because maybe she's the one woman in the room, I'm not going to put her on the spot and ask her, but they would say, you know, I really want to hear your perspective on this and you haven't said anything yet, Stephanie, and I know you have a lot to offer on this topic. So I'm going to come around to you next time after this person speaks. I want to hear your perspective. And the, the reason they say that is because they really do. And they really want to hear that perspective because they recognize that this is the power that diversity brings, right? Is different views and ways of seeing the world. And the inclusion part is creating the space that all people feel they can share that difference.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm hearing a distinction here of one is what would I do and what what are some of the choices I'd make as a leader in the moment, like facilitating a meeting, like you just described, and what I would say publicly as far as a big picture, what I believe, what I want for our organization around diversity and inclusion. And I'm guessing it's both, right? It's doing both those things.
1: Oh, absolutely. And some of that depends on maybe where you sit in the organization as the, you know, I mostly interviewed CEOs, what they do in meetings, you know, it's still important if you're talking about the um, their executive team or the board, but they also have the power to really ingrain diversity and inclusion into the values, mission, and vision. They have the power to set very specific, numeric, measurable goals around diversity and inclusion, to put a timeline on it, to add accountability, to make diversity and inclusion part of the performance appraisal to tie it to bonuses, all of those things that maybe, you know, where most leaders sit in the organization, you know, not everyone has that ability. And so maybe it's a question of, are you the very top leader? Then I think those actions should be ones that affect the whole organization. But if you're not the top leader, then you're really thinking about what can you do to inclusify your team, if not your whole company.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, for the person who's thinking about this and thinking, okay, I, I, I know my intentions are good. Maybe I've talked to a few people here and there in the organization about it informally, but I haven't really addressed this and really leaned into this in a way that is aligned with my vision and values for how I'm showing up as a leader of a team. Where do you find is a helpful place for that kind of a leader to start?
1: The starting point, I think, for anyone is probably with empathy. So maybe it's having individual conversations with people where, you know, I can express this to you and tell you, I want to understand more about your experiences. I want to get to know you as a person or with the whole group. So you can do kind of like you think of old fashioned team building exercises, but ones that really are focused on people's different life experiences and all of the different things that diversity brings, like, what are your identities? What were your headwinds and tailwinds growing up? And those type of meetings, I would say, you know, maybe a few years ago, I would say that's like kind of tough to get people to do that because it's really, you know, it's exposing you to such a great degree and you don't know how people are going to react, but you have seen more and more leaders doing that this year and just saying like. I want to hear stories. I want to give people the opportunity to speak about their experiences, whether it be here in how you're treated in this organization or just across your lifespan, because that's the only way we're going to learn. And that's the only way we're going to understand. And it's been pretty powerful, I think, not only for those leaders, but for others in the group to hear that amazingly, everyone's life experiences are not exactly like our own.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because I have felt that fear before and we do this within our academy groups of asking folks to tell some of their stories of their past and their journeys and so people do really hear the unique journey that each person's been on but I when I started doing that I I had fear about leaning in on that because I thought gosh you know I don't want to end up putting someone on the spot or making them feel like they have to share something that they're not comfortable with and I suspect that fear is shared amongst others too. Have you found that there's something that gets to that place of helping to open up some of those conversations that for the person who's never done that before is is useful as a starting point?
1: Yeah, you know, that question has, so many people have asked me that exact question. It's really funny, Dave. So I actually created a deck of cards um, and it's on my website. Anyone can download it for free. It's on drstephjohnson.com under resources. And they're basically... A deck of cards that you go through and you just have conversation. And it's not difficult to know where to start because you just start with the cards. The one that's probably the most popular right now that gets the most downloads is the COVID edition and mm-hmm. it enters these deep conversations about identity and experiences, but starting through the lens of COVID. So, you know, what are you experiencing right now um, with? COVID? How has COVID impacted your work life or your aspirations? And then it gets a little broader, but starting with the COVID angle makes it really easy for people to just maybe just justify to themselves why they're doing this now.
0: So utilizing current context of what's happening in the world, in the organization, maybe with clients, whatever's happening as a entry point to then have a meaningful conversation about where are we unique versus just that awkward, like, let's have a conversation about inclusion. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, exactly. It's like a weird place to start, right? <laughs> Even if your intentions are super, super good. But if you can start with something that is more germane to what's already happening and use that as an entry point, like, it, sounds like, it seems like a really nice transition.
1: Yeah, I think it makes it easy. And I, when you have an organization with maybe one... Black employee on your team and, you know, a leader, a very well-meaning leader sits down and says, you know, we're going to today have a dialogue about racial equity and Black Lives Matter. And maybe you're really putting this one person on the spot. In those cases, I would maybe take it a little slower and with smaller groups of people.
0: I I really appreciate this because this is as someone who would also identify as an optimist that, that has stopped me. You know there's been one person in the room who either very visibly or because of their their gender or race or is an outlier in the organization's broader demographics, entering into a conversation then I, there have been times where I haven't because I'm like, I don't want to put that person on the spot. I don't want and then, of course, you know, I have ended up doing nothing in some of those situations, right, and so I really appreciate the invitation of like, okay, maybe that isn't the way you enter the conversation, but that doesn't let you off the hook as a leader to not still be doing the work broadly within the context of what's of happening of having conversations about how people are unique and also how we all can belong within the organization.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also totally appropriate to have a conversation one-on-one with that person and say, "I want to be a more effective leader and I think that means being a better ally and do a little work first, you know, on your own. So you're not giving this one person even extra work to do to educate you on what it means to be an ally, but saying, you know, I would like to be an ally. The way I see this is making sure that you're invited into, you know, the room and important meetings, making sure I bring up your name for important opportunities. If people are overlooking your work, you know, championing it, recognizing your contributions and accomplishments, making sure you're not spoken over in meetings, And then saying, does that sound good to you?
0: Mm, Super helpful. Uh, One of the other things that um, you invite leaders and organizations to do is to get clear on metrics. And I'm conscious of what you said earlier, that not every leader has the ability to set metrics for this within the organization. Although I am thinking about a lot of folks in our listening audience, and even if they don't specifically themselves have that ability, they often influence that ability within their organizations. And what is it that is so important about setting metrics?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I talk to business people all the time, and they always say, you know, what's measured matters. And we use management by objectives and we use goal setting and we have numbers to hit, right? And why do we do all of those things? Like, because it works. We know from years of research on goal setting and that you have to assess where you are. Like if you think about like how much of a market share you have, you need to know where you are. You need to know where other companies are and you need to know then what's your goal and how are you going to get there? And with diversity and inclusion, I don't know that people feel comfortable really doing that because it feels like you know 1980s quotas or you, know, you you imagine you might get backlash from people who say, well, if you're setting goals, then how do you know you're not going to hire the worst person for the job, not the best person for the job to meet your numbers? And, and we know like of all diversity and inclusion interventions, it is the number one most effective thing you can do is looking at the data, setting goals. And then making sure you have some kind of accountability around those goals. Not, it doesn't mean you don't hire the best person for the job. It means you take the effort to ensure you have a very diverse applicant pool. Say if you're hiring a very diverse slate of finalists and that you're willing to take the time to find that and then choose the best person for the job. Fine. But I don't know how you can ever improve if you don't know where you are and you don't know where you're going. And then maybe as another aside, like I, interestingly have worked with a lot of leaders who actually are doing a good job on diversity and inclusion they are moving the needle but because they don't have any numbers around it they never feel like they're making progress they're just like i could be doing more and mean you know, maybe they're doing a great job and you don't know where to invest like which were the good investments which were the less good investments um if you don't put numbers around it
0: i suspect that there are the optimists that think about metrics and they have that response you just you just mentioned of I feel like if I set metrics that it becomes really transactional and then I'm just filling seats with someone who meets a, a demographic versus the really deep human like things that we want diversity inclusion to be. When you hear that from people, how do you help leaders to to take the step? beyond that into a place that's, that's more useful for them in the organization.
1: This nebulous idea of, we want to choose the best person for the job. Like how many times have you hired your buddy, your <laughs> someone you maybe you golf with their kid in for an internship, or, you know, you're filling a board seat and you know, this person from a past experience with them, you know, obviously they're super qualified, but is it really the best person for the job? Like I, we do this all the time where if someone gives employee referrals, we give referrals a little extra edge, right? Does that mean they're the best? No, it just might be like, at least, you know, someone might have some insight. This is a good person. And, you know, maybe we know they really want to be here in this office, in this location or whatever it might be. But I think we just need to let go of that idea that we're, And, you know, most of the time we're hiring the best person or we're promoting the best person because we're terrible judges of what that even means. And we make all sorts of decision-making shortcuts that just aren't going to necessarily yield the best person for the job. And if you're, if you tend to hire from 31% of the population in the U.S. is white men, do you really think you're getting the best person from just 30% of the population? Mm -hmm. What if you had 100% of the population? And I feel like that tends to be a pretty effective message. It's like, it's not saying, you know, just check boxes. It's like the goal is actually to do a better job hiring. And if we're going to do that, it means recruiting more broadly and maybe rethinking how we make decisions.
0: I so appreciate you sharing that. And I'm thinking about the story you tell in the book about, I believe it is a woman of color who shows up at college and there's a white man who says, you know, well, some version of like, well, you know, are you sure you're qualified to be here? And it turns out his last name is the same of the name of the building they're sitting in. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. His his parents donated a gym to the school. Did he get in? Because of his. And I mean, even the college admissions scandal in in the US um, a couple years ago. Oh,
0: yeah, I know. I know.
1: It's just proof. I mean, legacies, right? If your parents went to an Ivy, like they give your kids special consideration. Lots of people get where they are without just being that, you know, rising to the top based on their ability. So it's just like a false idea
0: it's so helpful to set some of that aside you know we 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 tend to look at things from one perspective but we don't think about it from the other super helpful one thing that is just such a useful action that comes up and there's several examples in the book that i i don't want folks to miss is just the process of bringing people into the organization in a different way and and you highlight several organizations including your own that has made some some just really, I would call them small, but really significant changes in the hiring process, as far as obscuring names and obscuring some of the details on resumes or applications when they come in. And particularly, I was really fascinated by what Hubble Space Telescope did. Would, would you share that story with us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is the Hubble Space Telescope is a you know it's a school bus sized telescope. It orbits Earth, and if you're an astrophysicist or an astronomer and you want to study supernova or galaxies, you will apply for time on this telescope and it'll take pictures of the things that you want. And it can only take so many pictures. So it's a competitive process. And for years, the Hubble Space Telescope Time Allocation Committee, the people who decide this, notice that there's a disparity that women always underperformed men every year, just by a little. Um, But that's accounting for the fact that so few women even apply. But they were always just a little bit less. And they thought there could be some bias there where, you know, maybe when it's a female principal investigator, people might say, well, does she have support on, you know, running the the stats or writing the code or interpreting the data? Or does she have a big enough lab? Is she too junior? Like these questions that only tend to come up for women. And so with uh, one of my then PhD students, but now Professor Jessica Kirk started working with Hubble and we it was such a great experience. We observed their decision-making processes and then eventually suggested that they just remove the names because it just, it's just easier, right? Like trying to tell people, Hey, don't be biased is tough because people don't even want to admit that they're biased in the first place. And what we found is after all this, you know, 15 years, when we removed the names, that tiny difference between men and women actually flipped so that the women outperform men in their acceptance rate. And it was phenomenal because, you know, it's maybe next year it'll be different. Maybe next year men will outperform, but it really just shows that men and women, people of color and whites were just a lot more equal, I think, than we implicitly believe. And it's okay if sometimes we outperform, one group outperforms the other, maybe it'll be different next year. But when you see that consistently, unless you really believe that that group is less talented, there's probably something wrong with how you're doing it. And I think that's what that study really revealed. Um, and actually I just received the group achievement award from NASA for that work in changing the Hubble space telescopes. Wow. Congrats. It was so amazing. Thanks. And NASA's actually doing the same thing now with their telescopes, not all of them, but as a, you know, maybe experimenting on how it works. It's, it's not totally easy to remove the names and it doesn't, you know, it's not a panacea. It doesn't address all of the structural inequalities that might get women to that spot or that might impede people of color from even getting, you know, a college education or a PhD. But I think it's a good step. Like if you can just find little places at every step in the process to remove bias, I think you're making better decisions. And what I'm really curious now is to see What does that mean for the types of discoveries that we have from Hubble over the next few years, right? Like maybe there's something different about the way or the questions that um, these women principal investigators look into.
0: It's such a great story. And the thing that really strikes me about it too is here's an organization that really wants to be inclusive and to have well-represented diversity within researchers and intends that way and leadership has articulated that and yet even then that the bias still shows up and right. one not necessarily easy but simple change that can be made and i think a lot of organizations can do something like that just taking off names or just just you know interrupting the normal things that trigger bias for us and if we're willing to do that wow you know and it addresses the systemic issues too it's not just you know one person it's how do we change the system so that we create the world that we want to have.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the challenge is the systems are going to yield the same results that the systems always yielded unless you change the system. It's not, I mean, it's not totally easy to do and it's not even totally easy to recognize what the system is doing when you're a part of it, right? Because it's like rec- people say with culture. You can't see the culture of your organization when you're in it because you know, it is just, it is, it just is what it is. But when you leave, sometimes it's easier to really understand what that culture was like. And I think it's the same, you know, we might have, I know another organization I worked with had this requirement for to get to a VP level, you had to take an expat assignment. And a lot of women were being lost in that, at that level. Like they weren't hitting that checkbox of having an expat assignment. And when they hired VPs in externally, they didn't have to have an expat assignment. So it was just like a rite of passage if you were promoted internally, but, and why did they do it? Because that's what we've always done. (laughs) And that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong about expat assignments, but if you have a metric like that or a requirement like that, that may be having a disproportionately negative impact on one group, in this case, women, you, you can just question, like, do we really need that? And if you do, then fine. But and maybe there's other things you can do to make it work.
0: I so appreciate everything you've shared, Stephanie. This has been so helpful. It's getting me changing my thinking on the ways I approach my work too. So we're going to link up to the book uh, in the weekly leadership guide. Also the cards on your website, will link up to those for folks who are maybe w- willing to take that first step to start to generate some of those conversations within their teams. Stephanie Johnson is the author of Inclusify, The Power of Uniqueness and Belonging, to build innovative teams. Stephanie, thank you so much for your work.
1: Oh, thank you for so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation.
0: I hope this conversation challenged you to think in some new ways. If it did, several other episodes that may also be of value to you. One of them is episode 307, How to Make Inclusion Happen. My guest on that episode was Deepa Prashathamon, Deepa has a tremendous amount of experience in helping support diversity and inclusion in large organizations, and in that episode, she talked about some of the initiatives that large enterprises are uh, championing in order to support diversity and inclusion. If you would like to dive in on that, episode 307, a good starting point for you. I'd also recommend episode 358, How to Lead Meetings That Get Results, with my guest on that episode, Mamie Canfer stewart Mamie is the host of the Modern Manager podcast, and in that conversation, we talked about the importance of running effective meetings, not only the importance, but how to do it well. And you keep hearing echoes in conversations about leading well, diversity, inclusion, communication, so many of these principles, and how important meetings are in making sure that we do those things well. In episode 358, some of the key practical guidelines for how to do that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 506, How to Support Women of Color with Minda Hearts. Uh, Just aired a couple of weeks ago. In that conversation, Minda and I looked specifically at women of color in the workplace and how we as leaders can support them better. It's an important conversation, a great compliment to this conversation today with Stephanie. I'd recommend it if you haven't checked it out already. All of those episodes, of course, are available on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not yet set up your free membership, I'm inviting you to do that today because you're going to get access to the entire listening library that's been aired since 2011 More importantly, the ability to search by topic. Uh, This episode will be filed under diversity and inclusion. Many conversations uh, beyond the ones I just mentioned that we've had over the years on these topics. I'd recommend diving in for more detail. Plus, you'll get access to the free audio courses on the site, my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday, my interview notes, which will be included with this episode as well, and a lot more. If you have not yet set up your free membership, you're missing out go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. And once you do, you will be off and running with everything you need for this year and beyond to support your leadership development. Thank you so much for listening. As always, have a wonderful week and see you back for the next conversation this coming Monday. Take care, everybody.